So this morning, it is a blessing to be with you all. It is a family Sunday, and if you look around the room, it means we have a greater number of young people. I mean, we're already filled with young people normally, but this is just even more. And because it's a family Sunday, that also means that there is a plethora of crock pots out there with food simmering. I am thankful that the doors close because that way at least it doesn't smell as good as it does in the hallway or the foyer or the Narxis. Narxis? Is that what you guys? Narthex. Yeah, see, those are bigger words. Just like Jason used the word this morning that I had no idea what it was. Um, He didn't even know what it was, so that's even better. Um, (laughs) But because we have young people here, My prayer has been that I'm able to take Ezra 6, which I know all of our young people have committed to memory, uh, because that's common. It's like one of those first passages that you instruct your children to memorize. Um, But maybe be able to simplify it a bit so that everybody in the room can understand it. So if you are anywhere under the age of 19, this morning is for you. Okay, so how many of you are under the age of 19? Paul, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Mike, Mike, join Paul. That's awesome. I see you guys have been wearing them one another. Um, so as I start, kids, I have some questions for you. Okay, so I need, I need your participation. And since everybody in here in some way is a child, you all may participate as well. Um, has anyone here, remember, show of hands, ever been asked to do something by your parent or by somebody in authority? Anybody? Every single person should have their hand up. Okay, we, we, okay. The fact that I asked you to do something meant you were asked to do something by someone in authority. It's going to be a long morning. (laughs) When asked by your parents or someone in authority, has anyone immediately obeyed? Probably most hands go up. (laughs) Has anyone chosen not to immediately obey what was asked? Yeah, and if you didn't raise your hand the first time, it should have been the first hands up. Think about those two situations. One side where you immediately obeyed, and on the other side when you didn't. Okay, so now I want a show of hands. Which one of them, either immediately obeying or not immediately obeying, had a better outcome? This side or this side? This side, well, okay, you got people who, you guys don't get it. Like, raise your hands, folks. There we go. Mike doesn't know. He, like this side over here, he's got them both up. <laughs> now, the reason why most of you raised the hand over on this side was because generally, when we obey straight away, things go better. We like the outcome better. And generally, when we like the outcome better, we feel better or we have more joy. 
And this morning we're going to see that joy, in particular, contagious joy, is joy that's evident to those around us. And so I want you to open up your Bibles to chapter 6 of Ezra. We're going to pick up in verse 13. Now, little ones, if you're not sure where Ezra is, I blame your parents. No, just kidding. <laughs> it's near the front of your Bible. It is after Chronicles and after Kings and before Proverbs and Psalms. And the reason why I didn't say it was before Nehemiah is because most people don't know where Nehemiah is. And because Kings and Chronicles are really long, you just kind of have to look and you can see the, the things on there. But so after Kings, Chronicles, before Psalms and Proverbs. And so normally I teach out of the ESV for a number of different reasons, but because we have some younger folks in here, I'm actually going to read from the NIRV. It's a little easier to understand and it's still faithful to the text. Okay? So, verse 13 of Ezra 6. The governor Tatnai and Shethar Bazanai carried out King Darius's order. And so did their friends. The elders of the Jews continued to build the temple. They enjoyed great success because of the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah the prophets. Zechariah belonged to the family line of Edo. The people finished building the temple. That's what the God of Israel had commanded them to do. Cyrus and Darius had given orders allowing them to do it. Later, Artaxerxes supplied many things that were needed in the temple. Those three men, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, were kings of Persia. And so the temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar. It was in the sixth year that Darius was king. And when the house of God was set apart... The people of Israel celebrated with joy. The priests and the Levites joined them. So did the rest of those who had returned from the land of Babylon. It says the people of Israel celebrated with great joy. That's contagious joy because the priests and the Levites and the rest of those who returned from the land of Babylon joined them. So now, for those who weren't in here last week, and so we got younger ones who I know weren't in here, and we have older ones who are serving, and we have guests, I thought it'd be helpful to try to do a little recap. Josh did an excellent job last week, and I'm going to go all the way back to try to give you an update so you understand what's going on here. There's three folks in this, right? They're called prophets. They speak God's instructions to God's people. Who are God's people? Israelites or the Jews, you can call it one or the other. And through the prophets, God told them, hey guys, it's time to rebuild the temple. Well, the temple, why would you need to rebuild it? Because it was destroyed. It was destroyed by their enemies. And because it was destroyed, it made it difficult for God's people to gather and worship the Lord. Well, why would they gather and worship the Lord? Well, because God told them to. That's why. 
And what did they do when they gathered and they worshiped? Well, we know they sang songs, but we also know that they made sacrifice for sins. Question is, why would you make sacrifice for sins? Does everybody know? Probably not. Anybody know the story of Adam and Eve? Anybody? Everybody? Kind of? I guess few. Man, you guys are rough. The sad part is I got the little ones responding better than the big ones. Oh, talk about being an example to your children. So Adam and Eve, right? Man, woman created in the garden. First man, first woman. And one day, while God is walking with them, and that in and of itself is absolutely amazing, that God's walking with them, tells them you can have anything you want of anything in here. Just not of one tree. Okay? So they say, what about that? Yeah, you can have that. You can have that. You can have, and even that one and that one and that one and that one. But the one in the center, the knowledge of good and evil, nada, nunca, niet, nothing. That's right. But see, Adam and Eve weren't satisfied with having everything else. And so they found it important to have things of that one. They disobeyed God. They brought sit, sin into the world. Anybody in here ever hidden when your parents showed up? Because you knew you weren't doing something right. I like Lynn. Lynn's like Navy. <laughs> yeah, too old to remember. Um, yeah, we, we tend to have sleepovers at our house. And generally, when you walk in the room, things change quickly. <laughs> See, when God returned, God's walking in the garden again. After Adam and Eve disobeyed, they decided to hide. So the fact that we do it, it's in our nature. We know when we've done something wrong. And so God asked, hey, what happened? And Adam, like the responsible man that he was, said she did it. (laughs) It's all her fault. In fact, it was her that you gave me. We always blame other people, don't we? At least it's our tendency. Well, at that point, God made it clear that when we disobey, there's a punishment that's necessary. And unfortunately, that punishment is death. And so to make sure that God's people understood what had to happen to cover your sin... He instituted some things over time that eventually they realized they had to sacrifice young animals. And that paid for the sins that they had committed. And the best place to do that was on an altar. And ultimately, he said, I'm going to be with you. And that altar was located in the temple. That's why the temple was important. So, Back to the passage. The temple, the place that they gathered, the place where sin offerings were made was destroyed. But God's people knew that it was important for them to have to worship according to God's instruction. And so God said, guys, you need to rebuild it. 
But for some reason, even though these kings had told them and made orders that they could rebuild it, they stopped. Now, it seems silly that they would stop doing something that God told them to do. And we don't know why for sure, but as Josh so effectively taught us last week, it seems that they were afraid of being called names. How many of you like being called names? Any young people? I like the fact that we've got both Hanoviks in back raising their hands saying they like being called names. See, you can do that, but I will call you out. (laughs) But see, it sounds silly that the reason you would stop doing something is not become something that was forcing, but you were afraid of being called a name, especially when God said, hey guys, you need to do this. So here they found themselves 16 years after they started building, the temple hadn't been worked on in a long time. And so God decides to use some other leaders, since you know his people weren't doing it, to make sure that the temple would be rebuilt because he desired to be worshipped by his people. And so God chooses to use the kings of the land to make an order or a decree that God's people would be allowed to rebuild. Now those orders came about because God wanted the temple rebuilt. But that also means that these kings that weren't God's people, something inside of them had to stir up that says, hey guys, I'm going to make a decree that we're going to allow this to happen. These are the same kings, the same countries that destroyed the temple. Like, like you do the math here. There's no reason for them to want to have God's people rebuild the temple other than God did something. So make sure you hear this. God will use whatever or whoever he wants to accomplish his purpose. And what is God's purpose for his people? That they worship him. So God will use whatever or whoever he wants to allow his people to worship him. So that begs a question. How do we know who are God's people? Well, Ethan, who's now gone, knew that it was the Israelites. There he is. He's back. They were people of Jewish descent. Those people, in order to worship God rightly, had to do two things. They had to believe God's word and they had to trust in his word. So think about it. To be his people, we must believe God and we must trust in his word. So God's people are called to do something, to make sacrifice for sin. It's to kill a baby animal, right? Does that make sense? No? If it doesn't make sense, because why would you just kill an animal to cover sin? That means you have to believe something other than naturally makes sense. They had to believe God that this is what he desired 
to make payment for sin. And so when they did that, they were demonstrating their faith and their trust in God. They must sacrifice this valuable animal because his, old, his holiness demanded a payment for their sin. Now today, I'm grateful that we don't have to sacrifice an animal for you. I probably would not be standing up here if I had to sacrifice an animal for you. Like that's outside of my realm. Some of you are saying, dude, I go hunting all the time. You go. That's not me. Come fly through the air and do other things with me. We'll see how that feels. <laughs> but see, thankfully, instead of having to sacrifice an animal on your behalf, Jesus Christ satisfied that need. He made the final payment. A full and complete payment for sin. So what changed? Yeah, Jesus came. But because he was born of a virgin and lived a perfect life, there was no sin in him. And if there's no sin, no death is required. And because no death was required, when he chose to die, and God recognized that death as not being required of him, he said, it's okay, I'm going to cover that on everyone else. He didn't deserve to die. We did. Friends, he didn't deserve to die. But we did. And today, if someone believes in Jesus, that original sin that comes to us because Adam chose to disobey in the garden, and the sins we commit as we live our lives often for ourselves each day, that sin, that debt is covered by Jesus. So back to our story. The Jews are rebuilding the temple. Okay? It says they built and they prospered in the ESV. That was the result of their obedience, and verse 14 is often overlooked. It says, they enjoyed, in the NIRV, I love this, great success. Because of the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah the prophets. See, it was obedience combined with the faithful proclamation of the word of God that caused great success. See, obedience isn't enough. See, the ESV says they prospered on account of it. See, it's obedience plus the teaching of God's word. When the people of God respond in obedience to the word of God, taught by those who are called by God to teach it, great Success results. Now, what does success look like? Well, in this case, this particular people group, the Jews, they rebuilt the temple as God commanded. 
And as they did it, Haggai and Zechariah continued to remind them about God's word. And it says, and the house was finished. Finally, it was built. Now, let me ask kids another question. Any of you ever get tired of having your parents remind you of the same thing over and over and over and over? Amen. I imagine that that's the way the Israelites felt as Haggai and Zechariah are reminding them over and over and over again. It's like, like really? Like we've heard this before. And you're going to, yes. And the faithful preaching of the word is just, we're going to tell you the same thing over and over and over again. But here's what we see. See, when we obey and we're consistently reminded of the truth found in God's word, things over time will go better for us. It doesn't mean that life will be easy. On the contrary, it means that life will be harder. Right? But we have hope that when the end comes, when it's time to go be with the Lord, we will get to spend eternity with Him, praising Him. That's the blessing that comes. And this has implications for us today because as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we've been given clear instructions for how God's people are called to live. How do we know how God calls us to live? How do we know what instructions we are to follow? Anybody know? I got one person holding up God's word. Man. Oh, parents. I need your help. (laughs) See, in God's word, friends, we have the very words of God that he determined should be preserved for us. Yes, they were written by men through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But because they're through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're God's words. And they've been preserved for us. And not only has God given us His word to read for ourselves, He's also given us certain folks to proclaim and teach His word. Who are those folks? Who's responsible at Hope Chapel for faithfully helping God's people to understand His Word? Elders, Elders, teachers, preachers, shepherds. You don't know elders? You do? Who? Elders. Elders, okay. (laughs) See, when God's people set themselves apart through their regular sacrifices and followed the instructions of the prophets, great success followed. The same is true today when God's people trust in Jesus and set themselves apart from the world and follow the instruction of faithful teachers who teach God's word. Great success follows. 
And you may say, why can I speak so confidently? And that's because of verses 17 through 22. So when the house of God was set apart, the people of Israel celebrated with joy. The priests and Levites joined them. So did the rest of those who had returned from the land of Babylon. Now, when the house of God was set apart to him, the people sacrificed a hundred bulls. They also sacrificed 200 rams and 400 male lambs as a sin offering for the whole nation of Israel. The people sacrificed 12 male goats. Anyone quickly know why they sacrificed 12 male goats? One for each tribe. Well done. It's what it says in the passage right after it. One for each tribe. The priests were appointed to their groups and the Levites were appointed to the groups and all of them served God at Jerusalem. They served him in keeping with what is written in the book of Moses. So they're following God's word to do what God told them to do. Now, the people who had returned from the land of Babylon, and this is important, celebrated the Passover feast. It was on the 14th day of the first month. The priests and Levites had made themselves pure and clean. The Levites killed Passover lambs for the people who had returned from Babylon. They did it for themselves and their relatives, the priests. So the Israelites who had returned ate the Passover lamb. They ate it together with all those who had separated themselves from the practices of their Gentile neighbors. Those practices were unclean. And the people worshipped the Lord. Friends, there's a potluck right in the Bible. He is the God of Israel. For seven days, they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread with joy. That's what we need to do, seven days of potluck. And because the Lord had filled them with joy, they were glad because he had changed the mind of the king of Persia. So the king had helped them with the work on the house of the God of Israel. See, this section of scripture, chapters one through six of Ezra, closes with the first generation of Jewish returnees celebrating the Passover at the rebuilt temple. Now, for our younger folks, what's the Passover and why is it significant? Well, first over, the Passover is a celebration. It's a religious celebration of God rescuing his people, the Israelites, from the Egyptians. Y'all remember Moses and Pharaoh? Yeah, so you got these plagues that went on and finally that last plague was kind of the worst one of everything. And the only way children in the land, especially the first male, was saved was that the blood of the lamb was sprinkled over the doorposts. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back figuratively. And Pharaoh said, get out. I don't want you here anymore. And so Moses and all the people of Israel make their way out of Egypt And they get to a certain spot. That spot is this massive sea, right? You got an army behind you and you got a sea in front of you. That's never good. Ever. But God opened up that sea. They were able to walk across on dry land. The Egyptians, these armies chased after them. And while they're in the midst of the sea, the waters closed up over them. And so here they are in a new land rescued 
from bondage. And so the Passover is the celebration of God working for them. And so this group of Israelites were seeking to celebrate that, their rescue from Egypt. And so because they've been waiting to celebrate, they're hopeful. Anybody really love their birthday? They start counting it down. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) I know I've got one that tells me, yep, we've got seven weeks. Yep, we've got six weeks. Yep, we've got five and a half weeks. And it gets closer and closer because they love their birthday. The Jewish people loved celebrating Passover. And so you can imagine that when they finally got to celebrate Passover as a congregation, what that would have been like. What's it say they were? They were filled with joy. See, by celebrating Passover... This returned community is acting on their hope. They're living out their faith. They're standing firm on God's word. And by gathering each Sunday, we're acting in faith. We are living out our hope. We are standing firm on God's word in Christ with one another as a gathered body of believers. But now you might have overlooked verse 21. It's interesting. It says that the Israelites celebrated Passover with all those who had separated themselves from the practices of their Gentile neighbors. And those practices were unclean. See, this is important because it means that anyone who is willing to separate themselves they were able to participate. See, holiness was important to the people of Israel. Being different from culture, those unclean practices was important. See, not anyone could participate, but only those who had been made clean. Well, how is someone made clean today? Believe in Jesus. See, once Jesus died and rose again, God's people were no longer based upon their family line. Their cleanness was no longer based upon the sacrifice of a little animal. It was based solely upon the finished work of Jesus on the cross. God's people are those whose hearts are turned towards the Lord. And now non-Israelites worship the Lord. See, if we understand the importance of this set-apartness for the Israelites, it helps us understand why Israel refused help back in Ezra 4. So turn back to Ezra 4 real quick. So remember, they're being told to stop doing this. And in the middle of there... There's a spot, and I know in some of the smaller Bibles you can't find it, but it says that they were not able to because they were worldly people. They were unclean. 
Now, certain things God says are important. What's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So if we love the Lord with our mind and our heart and our strength, just some practical questions. Should we be disrespectful towards others? Should we? No. Should the words we use build others up or tear down? Build up. Should the songs we listen to talk about things that dishonor the Lord? Should the movies or the shows we watch have images that aren't modest? See, it doesn't matter if it's TV or YouTube or TikTok or a reel. There's a whole bunch of stuff that culture tells us is okay. That by the Lord's standard is unclean. See, set apartness matters to God. God's people in Ezra 4 refused to accept help from the people of the land. Those not set apart in the rebuilding of the temple. Because... God's people understood that it was only okay to rebuild the temple if people would set themselves apart. And as we see here in Ezra 6, it means they would stop the practices of the Gentiles. So that way they would worship Yahweh alone. That means non-Jewish people had to be willing to be perceived as different. That was big. Somebody who is of the culture of the world to raise their hand and say, I'm willing to be different and be thought of as an outsider was a big step. So would you describe yourself like that? Would you describe yourself as someone who is willing to be different? If you were to hand me your phone, anybody here, and I was to open up, let's say YouTube, and looked at the suggested videos, would I be confident that you looked different? Would your TikTok feed honor the Lord? Would your recently played music on Spotify honor the Lord? If I looked at your phone, would I be able to say, man, this young man, this young woman, or this follower of Jesus is clearly concerned about walking in holiness? Could I? Would your friends describe you that way? When your friends think about somebody who is set apart, do they say, hey, I trust Joey. Or I trust Kelsey. Or I trust Eman. He says, yes. (laughs) This passage makes it clear. Anyone who's willing to worship the God of Israel is welcome to. 
But if they wanted to, they had to come to God as God ordained. And Jesus said we must count the cost before we come to him. For those living in Old Testament times, it meant they believed God's word. They were covered by the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. It's why they were excited to celebrate the Passover. And even though Jesus Christ has come and died for our sin, resurrected, the principle still remains. We must believe God's word and be covered by the sacrifice of the lamb. The difference is we don't offer a physical sacrifice, but a spiritual sacrifice. And we don't offer it. He offered it in our place. Friends, this type of holiness, this type of set-apartness, this type of willingness to gather together to worship the living God, it says, brings joy. The Israelites and those who set themselves apart to God celebrated the festival with joy. Verse 22, because the Lord had made them joyful. They are joyful because the Lord was at work in their midst. Think about it. God turned the hearts of enemy kings to help them. That's insane. That's what God does. Everything is the Lord. And any blessing that we enjoy is from Him. Anybody ever worked to buy something? Anybody? How many of you had to work really hard to buy something? Yeah? Um, You do realize that that was still a gift from the Lord. See, however things come to you, whether you work for them or they're a gift, maybe you traded something for it, maybe it was inherited from your parents, they were still sent by God to you because he wanted to bless you with those things. The hearts of men are also in the hand of God. And God prompts people to be kind to us, to hire us, to become an instrument of his provision so that we're nourished and provided for like we see in this passage. And God blesses those who follow his commands, obedience connected with the preaching of the word to prosper in all they do. And this is exciting. Because it's not limited to a particular period of time or any particular group of people. Because anyone who's willing to set themselves apart in this way experiences this blessing. I want to close with a more recent example. I've had the pleasure of reading the journals and the spiritual counsels of Thomas Charles. Some people wondering, who's Thomas Charles? Got a whole bunch of heads nodding, going, not sure who you're talking about. Well, he was a pastor in the late 1700s across the Atlantic in Wales. I want to give you a description of what North Wales was like in the middle of the 1700s. 
Give a description for the parents, and then I will make it simpler for our younger people. Gluttony, drunkenness, and licentiousness like a torrent overran the land. From the pulpit, the name of the Redeemer was hardly ever heard, nor was there never, or nor was there ever much mention made of the natural sinfulness of man. Mid 1700s. Translated, the majority of the people didn't exhibit self control. Many chose to eat way more than they should. Many chose to drink alcohol way more than they should. Many chose to engage with those of the opposite sex in different ways than they should. Pastors, even though they stood in the pulpit, rarely told people about Jesus. And they definitely didn't tell them about the things they were doing wrong, which means they didn't tell them they needed to repent of their sins. In short, things weren't good. That was the middle of the 1700s. From Mr. Charles's journal, by the late 1700s, it got worse. Here's his own experience. So imagine a church congregation. They come together on a Sunday. They've been out without a pastor for three, four, five months. And Mr. Charles is assigned to go to that church to teach. How do you think he would be received? Excited. Well, when Mr. Charles arrived at the first church he was assigned to, the congregation didn't like the fact that he talked about sin. Guess how long he lasted? Two weeks. Two services and a midweek service. He made it a third. Because he taught them about Jesus and their need to turn from their sinful ways, They kicked him out after two weeks. They wanted teaching that would make them feel good about themselves. See, he pointed out their sin. He pointed out their need for forgiveness. He tried to teach them about their need for redemption, to be reconciled to God. He pointed them to the cross of Jesus Christ. And because Mr. Charles loved them like that, they kicked him out after two weeks. But it wasn't just one church, though. This pattern repeated itself over and over. On a good occasion, there was a church that was located 14 miles away from where he lived. He walked there multiple times per week. It was over rugged terrain and it was in the winter and they tolerated his preaching for three months. Friends, cancel culture is not new. Cancel culture is not new. What we face today has been going on since the beginning of man. Imagine being canceled, doing the one thing you believe God called you to do for five or six years straight. Being assigned to a new place and being kicked out. Being assigned to a new place and being kicked out. Because you were preaching the gospel. Diligence. Perseverance. 
talk about responding in love when others slander you, that is hard, hard work. And yet Thomas Charles was faithful despite being sick for most of that time. See, when we choose to be set apart, that great blessing that comes is not a life of ease. It is not. But everything we receive is from God. Obedience to His Word combined with the faithful teaching from His Word brings blessing. So this prolonged experience given to Thomas Charles by God prepared him for what God was going to do. See, it was during those five or six years that he better understood his own sinfulness. He could see himself in the people, in his responses to people, his depravity and his weakness. He was aware of his need for a savior. And then in April of 1785, from Mr. Charles's perspective, things changed. God began to work. Here's one example of what he wrote. I am just this moment come home from three weeks tour through Cavernshire and Anglis Lee. The fields here all over the country are white for the harvest. Fresh ground is gained daily. Whole neighborhoods where the word has been heretofore opposed call aloud for the gospel. Thousands flock to hear and many in different parts of the country. We have good reason to believe are effectually called. See, the spread of the gospel began. It required hard, painstaking work, perseverance and diligence on Mr. Charles's part. But most of all, it required a dependence upon prayer. That blessing resulted for generations to come. Here's a few decades later. The outpouring of the Spirit has been and still continues at times so abundant and powerful. Among those who made the utmost opposition to it, that we see with our eyes an evident fulfillment of the promise of the Father to the Son. Scores of the wildest and most inconsiderate of the people have been awakened. This glorious work began on a Sunday afternoon in the chapel where I preached twice that day and cannot say that there was anything particular in the ministry of the day more than what I had often experienced among our dear people here. But towards the close of that service, the Spirit of God seemed to work in a powerful manner on the minds of great numbers present who never before sought the Lord's face. But now there was a general loud crying, what must I do to be saved? And God be merciful to me, a sinner. And about nine or 10 o'clock, get that. He started in the early afternoon at nine or 10 o'clock at night. There was nothing to be heard from one end of the town to the other, but the cries and groans of people in distress of soul. And the very same night, a spirit of deep conviction and serious concern fell upon whole congregations in this neighborhood when calling upon the name of the Lord. 
says the whole country is in a manner emerging from a state of great ignorance and barbarity to civilization and piety. Bibles without end are called for, are read diligently, learned by heart, and searched into with unwearied diligence and care. Now listen. Instead of vain amusements, dancing, card playing, interludes, quarreling, and barbarous and most cruel fighting, we now have prayer meetings. Our congregations are crowded, and public catechizing has become pleasant, familiar, and profitable. Great success. See, in the U.S., and sadly, what the U.S. has sent around the world, great success is defined as prosperity, ease. There was none of that in the Israelites' time. Mr. Charles and most of those who experienced those types of revivals, it wasn't about prosperity. It was about the success of the gospel. Not health, not wealth, not the absence of conflict. It's not ease. It's that our lives look more and more and more like Jesus. It means we desire the things that please the Lord, which means we become more and more and more prepared to spend eternity with Him. Friends, when I read stories, when I read accounts of what the Lord has done in the past, I have hope for the culture that we live in. There is hope for 21st century America. And Scotland, and England, and Australia, and Iceland, and Thailand... Anywhere the gospel seems all but lost, there is hope. Sadly, many just say, well, things are just getting worse. And as a result, they give themselves a reason not to play a part. But we are called to work with all diligence. We are called to set ourselves apart. We are called to proclaim the gospel where we are. See, when you listen to Mr. Charles' description of Northern Wales, does it sound any different from today? Not at all. And for years and years and years, they faithfully proclaim the gospel. And then God moved. 16 years the temple was supposed to be rebuilt and nothing's happening. And then God moved. Sure, in our day and age, some things may be different. You don't hear Mr. Charles talk about marriages between men or marriages between women that are being celebrated. You don't hear him talk about the fact that pregnant women are being encouraged to end the life of an unwanted child. You can assume that immodesty is simply part of their culture. But friends, there's nothing new under the sun. We struggle with the same things today that their culture did, that the Jews did. See, I sense God ordained for us to study this passage this morning to challenge us. One simple question. 
Will you stand firm and be different from the world? Will we as a body stand firm and be different from the world? Are we willing to embrace holiness? Are we willing to boldly proclaim God's word, calling people to repentance? Are we willing to stand firm and proclaim that Jesus and Jesus alone saves? Friends, what we hear God used in Mr. Charles's day was simply pro- the proclaiming of the faith. It wasn't an organized program. It was the proclaiming of the faith faithfully, week in, week out. Life's lived for Christ. It was a purpose commitment to share the gospel faithfully, allowing God to work. And it was God in the passage in Ezra 6 who worked to have Darius and Cyrus and Artaxerxes to work for the people on God's benefit. It was God who changed the hearts of men. It was faithful followers of God in the Old Testament and followers of Jesus in the New Testament the one and the same who experienced the joy and blessing that followed. It's God who works today to bring people to himself. So let's pursue that joy that comes from it. Let our joy that's rooted in the Lord become contagious that others can see it. Let us invite others into that joy. Let our manner of obedience be tied to faithful preaching. Be different. Here's the charge to us as a church. Pray that people's hearts would be stirred to the things of God. Pray that people would repent. Pray for revival. I was challenged this week as I'm studying, when's the last time that I prayed and really believed that God could move? I had given up hope. Jason sent me a note, said it's so easy to give up hope. This is for us. Hope reigns. Believe that God can change hearts. Believe that God is sovereign over the leaders today. Believe that no one is outside of God's reach. And pray. Pray that you'd have the courage to set yourself apart. Pray that you'd have the courage to be different. Pray that you would receive the blessing of joy. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I do pray that hearts would be stirred towards the things of you. I pray for the little ones who sit in this room today. I pray that their hearts would be turned to you, that they would be yours, that they would inherit the kingdom of God. Lord, I pray that their minds would be protected from the things of this world, that your will would be done in them, that they look more and more like you. Father, I pray for the parents in this room, that they are able to rightly discern how to best lead and guide their children. 
Lord, I pray for the leaders of this church that we would have the wisdom to know what you're calling us to and we would have the courage to stand firm in the midst of culture. Lord, I pray for the leaders of this city, of this state, of this country. They're not outside your reach, Lord. You are sovereign over their minds. I pray that minds would be changed, that hearts would be turned towards you, that the things that stand against you would be removed. The laws that are put in place that dishonor you would be stricken from the record. Lord, ultimately, I pray that our hope would rest in you alone. That our hope and our countenance would not be grounded in the way things are going. Or in the ease that we have. But that we would be content that you've placed us here for your purpose and be willing to work for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.